The opinions expressed in these materials represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Reference to any third party, specific product, process, or service by trade name, trademark, or otherwise does not constitute or imply endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by salient. Welcome back, everyone, to the next episode of the Epsilon Theory Podcast. I'm joined today by several guests and want to kick things off and and turn right to Ben Hunt. Uh, Your last note um, inspired a lot of conversation and comments from your readers, but also um, it inspired a lot internally as well in terms of conversation about what's happening in the markets. It did, Michael. That was Michael Correo behind the glass, as they say here on Talk Radio and Epsilon Theory Podcast. Uh, it, it did. Uh, I got a tremendous amount of response uh, from readers, uh, most of it positive, actually way more than most of it positive. But uh, it, it did inspire a lot of really, really thoughtful pieces uh, from readers. And it also inspired some thoughtful comments from my partners. So that's why I thought we would uh, expand the conversation a little bit today. I am joined by a stalwart uh, podcast partner, uh, Rusty Gwynn, Deputy CIO. And for his inaugural experience on an Epsilon Theory podcast, my partner, Lee Partridge, the CIO uh, here at Salient Partners. And I, I, I want for both of you to uh, uh, jump right into it because we the, the, the point, one of the points I was trying to make in the piece I wrote was that I, I, I hate that we are so focused, uh, that we are such true believers that only the state, only government can cast the spells or do the reforms that uh, get us back to, as I said in the piece, uh, the banana plants growing again, to, to, to global growth being what it has been in the past, and I think it can be again, or if not global growth, at least growth here in the, the, the United States. And it, and it feels to me that our only conversation is about some measure of government-driven, some sort of policy-driven solution to this, right? That either we have monetary policy, and we've seen the results of that over the last certainly seven years, or the only alternative, the only possible conceivable alternative is to have some activist fiscal policy to save the day. And the the conversation that it sparked among a lot of the readers and and here internally at Salient was, well, what do we mean by fiscal policy, right? Is is that all that we can imagine, that it's just the government spending and taxing more to spur aggregate demand or whatever terminology of the, the priest kings we want to use? Or is there something more that we can look at from fiscal policy? And, and it was you, Lee, in particular, who wrote, I think you described it as you wanted to see, I'll call it fiscal reform, or as you said, fiscal medicine, mm-hmm. maybe as, as a way of getting those banana plants to grow again. But, but, but just riff on that for a second. I mean, what, what, what are you 
reacting against when you look at what's gone on in the last seven years and and where do you think we can go? Right. Well, no, I, I very much agreed with a lot of your note. I think that one of the things that um, I, I somewhat had a different perspective on is that the problem wasn't squarely in the camp of the Fed asserting their role as the magician over the economy. Mm -hmm. Really, you have to go back several steps before that and ask the question of what has fundamentally taken us to the point where we're at and why did the Fed even you know, initiate the unconventional policy responses that they did. And most of us forget that Green or Greenspan, that was the other guy, Bernanke, right. actually stepped down in December of 2014. So most of the experience we've had with the Fed has really been under Bernanke because the open market crisis right. just stopped in December of 2014. And then Janet Yellen took over and really her main policy initiative has been one increase in interest rates. So that's really what we've seen from the Fed. But going back to the financial crisis and why we're in the state that we're in, in my opinion, it's that we like to consume and we like to consume beyond what our current means will allow us to consume or what current output will allow us to consume. So the only way that you can bridge that gap of the deficit is by borrowing money. And we like to borrow and we borrow at every level. We borrow at the national level, the consumer level, at the corporate level. And corporate borrowing is up significantly from where we were in 2007 and 2008. So I think that the real fundamental problem is that we like to have more fun than what we can really afford to have on a sustainable basis. And that's what policymakers are contending with. So you either have to have less fun or find a way to finance more of your fund, either through borrowing more or producing more. And I, I you know, that that's what, yeah, I don't know if there is a fiscal policy prescription, but right. no, nobody wants to say we just need to have less fun. No, the, the grumpy grandpa routine works mighty poorly in politics in, mm-hmm. in, in particular, and for investors also, I might say. Yeah. Well, and really the only instances historically that we have that are that are corollaries, you know, the, the same time where we're stuck with uh, the need for a grumpy grandpa, we're also stuck with a world war. So the, the, the need and the recognition for austerity and tough measures, you know, you've got a population that's conditioned for it. And, and so... The, the need to deal with debt is, is very present in a you know, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s population in the way that it isn't today at all. Well, look, when we agree that there are three ways to get out of too much debt, you can either grow your way out, which we all want, you can inflate your way out, or you can assign losses. That's it, right? It's, 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 that's door number one, door number two, and door number three. Only three, way, three ways I know of. Oh, agreed. And and so you can inflate your way out, which feels less bad. But, but see, this is where I want to come back to the fiscal policy, right? Because <laughs> let's, let's, let's just, and I, and I, trust me, I get your point about we need to be all be able to pay for our fund. If we can't, we have to assign losses and go through that door number three. But there's no status quo government in the world that will ever voluntarily walk through that door number three. I mean, you have to be Greece and you have to be thrown through that door by Germany to go through that 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 third door, the door of austerity, right? So we're left with the door of growth, and we're left with the door of inflation. Now, let's say, and this is where I wanted to talk about fiscal policy. Can we imagine fiscal policies that encourage 
growth. Because I, I tell you, and this is the McKinsey data that I know we, we've all looked at here in terms of both the level of debt around the world, looking at household sector, government sector, corporate sector, and financial sector. But also, McKinsey does a good job, I think, of looking at the, the ability of countries to delever through growth. You know, what future growth rate would a country have to have to start delevering through growth alone? And, you know, you go to a country like France or Japan or the, or the UK, and they've basically got to double their current GDP to start delevering through growth. I mean, forget it. Spain's, you've got to, you've got to triple. You need a triple. But the U.S., I mean, there's, and I think the numbers add up pretty well, and I don't want to get into the entitlement question yet, but with a 3 3.3%, 3.5% growth rate here in the United States, we can actually still, believe it or not, delever through growth. So is it, does it make sense to talk about government policy as an engine for growth? No, look, that's a that's a that's a that's rusty. That's rusty's so, answer. He says no. So Ben's spouting some magic words here. This this <laughs> this idea that we can deliver. I'm an alt priest. <laughs> with the we can deliver with three percent growth is ludicrous. Right now, if you taking into account current GDP growth as, uh, assumptions and the growth of liabilities that are not currently part of the national debt, which is to say entitlement programs for the next seventy five years, you summed up the actual net present value of the net, so basically the shortfall between our future projected assets and our future projected liabilities, that number comes in somewhere around $225 trillion, with a T. That's just the U.S. Our future shortfall is, in taking into account expected economic growth, roughly the overall wealth of the entire world added together, including people's baseball card collections, their homes, their children's toys and all their financial assets. So everything we're talking about in terms of fiscal policy is around the margin when you compare to the entitlement system that we have in place today and the real debt that we've put in place, which is the guarantees that we've made for future payments to various individuals, which is the definition of a liability. So I think if you did the math, we would find out we would have to grow at an extraordinary rate in order to meet the true liabilities that we've expressed. Otherwise, we're back to the same yeah, economy but, but Rusty, earlier. You don't, you don't have to get those liabilities, those future liabilities down to zero, right? You just need to make them manageable. You need to make them fundable. So, Well, the $220 trillion is the net. That is net. That's not the total value of those liabilities. Well, no, no, I, I get it. But, but, that, but you, don't, you don't have to make that net number go to zero. Right? So I, I don't think that 3.5% is – I think that that kicks the can down the road – for 50 years or and and you know compared to the alternative i'm kind of willing to, to take that but maybe even that's maybe even that's you know wishful thinking in the extreme i don't know how we get to three and a half percent i guess the, the question i wanted to ask you guys is are there policies that the government could undertake to get us there because we've certainly seen a lot of it proposed of late Right with the uh, rates where they are, let's let's float a you know thirty year trillion dollar bond and do infrastructure. I get a lot of emails talking about that. I think it's nuts, by the way. But but I'm I'm curious to 
Well, I'll, I'll kind of tag on to where Rusty was. So first of all, I do think that it's going to be very difficult for the United States and most of the world to actually achieve a primary surplus at any growth rate. So forget about interest payments, just being able to balance budget and get to the point where we actually do have a true surplus, certainly on a global basis. So I don't know what that number is. I suspect it probably is around three and a half percent globally, you know, before you can really get to where you're closing the gap. So in, in the meantime, our debt is going to continue to grow and it really doesn't even take into account under our current accounting standards the post-retirement obligations and medical obligations that Rusty alluded to before. So that that is the big problem. And that is where we're not. We do like, when I say have more fun, it may mean that in the last three years of our life, we're on liver dialysis and we spend, or kidney dialysis, and we spend 70% of our lifetime healthcare dollars. Right. So that that's really, I don't know how much fun that is, but that that's the reality of where a lot of our money is going. So um, without adjusting those entitlements as a government-led uh, form of austerity, then you're getting into what, what can promote growth. And I don't know if you can really target a level of growth that the current economy and the indebtedness of you know, consumers and corporations will naturally allow, uh, but... I think that the government can do things that are not impediments to growth. And I think that right now we're in a state where we've been increasing regulation. We've been increasing capital requirements on financial institutions, neither of which are ostensibly bad. But part of the reason that we have such high capital requirements is that policymakers haven't wanted the market to take its natural course where there are winners and losers and people, you know, feel the results of bad decisions that they've made with allocations of capital. In that world, you don't need as much capital because you don't need as much of a buffer because investors are much more skeptical about where they should actually put dollars at risk. And then the the other, uh, you know, second big one is just, you know, having so many layers of taxation in our system creates a lot of friction. So, you know, the, the tax that we have on foreign profits is, is a problem. The tax that uh, we have at the corporate level as well as the individual level. I mean, all of those create more friction and I think impedes the flow of capital. Well, but so I guess what I would say is I think I agree with all those things. I think all those things are true. But when you look at the, the 90% or 85, I don't know what the sort of principal component analysis would tell us on this of what drives GDP growth. The two primary factors are, are going to be growth in productivity and growth in population. And, you know, I think that ultimately growth in population, as we all know and we've all discussed, is going to be down and it's going to be down for the next, well, you know, whatever the whatever the, the date of the next great world war of famine or diseases or or infinity. And and so you're talking about relative to the history that we all talk about and that we've all grown accustomed to in all of our analyses, even the ones that go back three or four hundred years, you're probably talking somewhere between a 40 and 100 basis point drop in long-term realistic GDP expectations. At the same time that we're looking at from a productivity perspective, we talk about technology, but think about things like mineral extraction and the actual, you know, ultimately all all economic activity is taking something out of the ground and turning it into something. And then there are services that surround that. And that's, that's the economy. 
well, the fundamental act of extracting something from the ground, whether it's a foodstuff or a metal or some uh, fossil fuel, um, or taking from the sky in the form of solar power, right. is is becoming progressively less productive. So GDP growth is not going to get to 3.5% on a global basis, even on a short-term, much less a long-term, for the rest of our lives or I think the rest of any of our grandchildren's lives. So to me, the question still goes back to those three components you addressed earlier and realizing that, yes, maybe we can defray some of this through policies which will favor economic growth. But when it comes down to is we do need to assign whether to us how do we're going to assign losses. Are we going to assign it arbitrarily to holders of assets through inflation? Or are we going to assign it in a non-arbitrary fashion to holders of assets that made bad investment decisions by allocating losses on a more direct basis? Well, look, I, I think there's a third possibility, right, which is you know, it could be, well, I'll put it this way, jubilee. Right, where you're not assigning it on the base losses on the basis of indiscriminately through inflation. You're not assigning it discriminately on the basis of, oh, you made a bad decision. You're assigning it on the basis of, do you have the political power or not to have your debts wiped out? <laughs> so this reminds me, by the way, we so we've give a reference to this fantastic web comic that we discovered somewhat recently, which is a existential comics, and I think it is actually existentialcomics.com. It's uh, it's fantastic, but there's it's it's basically the, the lives and exploits of a number of different historical philosophers, and Karl Marx happens to be one of the uh, the, the philosophers that they reference. And one of the real life situations, I think, is uh, them debating whether or not it's um, you know appropriate for a for a you know about socialist to tip someone. Uh, at, right. a, at a restaurant, and by the end they can't decide, and they decide to just run out on the bill. And yes, of course, right. Marx goes under the table, flips it over, and What's says, that? "Revolution!" That's great. It's classic. That's great. Yeah, because it, it does strike me that you know we we all talk about fiscal policy, and the and when we say fiscal reform, right, we're all talking the same language. Right, the three of us around this table. We're talking about spending a whole lot more money, right, Ben? Yeah, yeah, yeah right, right. We're talking about <laughs> oh, we, on the military. We need to do that's these. Right. That's right. We need to do these structural reforms. And, and, and to be fair, when Mario Draghi is talking about structural reform, he's talking about the same thing, right? When Fed's talking about fiscal reform, they're talking about the same thing. Although they're adding on to it. Well, you might want to do some deficit spending, you know, in the short term, because it's always just in the short term. But we're all speaking that language. That's what we're saying. But I think I know that what our politicians and our fellow citizens hear when you talk about fiscal reform is not cutting taxes and pro-growth, pro-trade policies. That's not what anyone hears. What they hear is, oh, let's do more taxing. Yeah, more consumption, pork. more spending, more pork. That's right, and 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 it just it's this this was the big point of the of the paper I was trying to write is that, is that once you open that door to call for the government to get involved, the outcome of this I think are, is very unlikely to be the outcome that we sitting around this table would 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 argue for. That war is over, Ben. So 45 years ago, <laughs> 45 years ago, when, when Maggie Thatcher held up the road to serfdom, slammed it down on the on the lectern and said, this is what we believe. Uh, you know, the, the world has changed a little bit. It's it, we've yeah, turned, just a tad, right? The right-sounding ideas is all that matters. 
And when a, when a politician realized that they can get up there and point out a single discrete individual who benefits from a policy and the costs are dispersed, they are in the, the ether, they're paid for by some fractional percentage by hundreds of millions of people, the realization is that from a rhetorical perspective in an all-day, everyday news cycle, the small L liberal politics are absolutely doomed. Yeah, you yeah, cannot right. tell the story of how a more efficient system for allocating capital benefits individuals because, well, I guess not Gawker anymore now that Peter Thiel has right. dealt with that. Right. But that the, the Huffington Post is going to get on there and sneeringly refer to, oh, it's trickle-down economics all over again. And they'll bring out the joking references to the Laffer curve. And everyone will sort of chuckle at themselves in their internet wisdom about how this sort of dispersed view of economic activity incentivizing it works and how it's all just, oh, that's just the 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 you know top one percent trying to, to keep everyone down. That's supply side economics. We saw how that worked, yeah, didn't we? Yeah, it's really right. yeah. But you know, we've all talked about this even with respect to our children and and the likelihood that they're gonna enjoy the same prosperity in their future. And part of what I think we're dealing with is a cumulative effect of technology and innovation that we've realized over the last 20 years. And can we really achieve a level of employment that is going to keep everybody happy outside of a quasi-socialist state or welfare state? And I think that that's going to be a real challenge that we're going to be confronted with over the next two decades. And I, I love the idea of laissez-faire economics, but does it really work if you've got you know, 50% of the working age citizens not able to find a job? Well, I think we've been pretty good at providing bread and circuses, right? And, and so, and seriously, I mean, when you think about, um, I was thinking about I was having this conversation about productivity and the standard of living, you, you know, when we talk about, oh, the, the, the dollar should be strong or should be weak, a weak dollar is good for growth because it improves our ability to export. But a weak dollar is bad for standard of living. Yes. Right. And so, so that's been the, the, the trade-off. We've had, we've had a strong dollar, a strong dollar policy, and, and, it, and it helps our standard of living. We're able to buy more stuff cheap. So it, it's, it, there is a trade-off, and what I think it, it, it generates, and, and this is the, where I think fiscal reform and, and all of this is going, is not for policies to generate growth which I know which all of us around the table want to do and, and Rusty's despairing of it ever happening again. And I, I, I used to think I was the most downer person in a conversation, but it's Rusty, right? Instead of trying to encourage the policies of growth, I think that where quote-unquote fiscal reform is going is to turn markets into utilities to try to maintain that standard of living. Because I think the, the, the politics of identity and a, and a standard of living I think that's a stable political equilibrium. I think that's that's where we're moving towards. It's not it's not a smoke filled room. Certainly not a smoke filled room today. It's 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 a it's it's but it's not that conspiratorial notion. I think this is where all political parties are moving because it's a way of staying relevant and staying in power and keeping the status quo going on. Which kind of insight? Then I wonder what we do as asset managers, right? If we're moving towards markets turned into utilities, does that mean we invest in utilities, right? I mean, what, 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 what does that mean for us as asset managers and as just as, as investors? Because it really changes the whole notion 
of what it means to invest on fundamentals if the policy is driven so that those business cycles and those fundamentals don't matter in terms of prices. Heavy. But they do matter, and they matter in aggregate, and then they matter at a country level. I thought it, the, the way you phrased um, the effects of the strong dollar over time, I thought was, was very well articulated. And what I heard is that we basically imported a lot of unemployment. Oh, that's totally what we did. So, but during that but, period... But we also imported a lot of what we call it, what, what is the, the hedonic model, right? It's not hedonism, but it's it's the the, the, the pleasure and the, we the standard of living. That's we correct. imported a ton So of we had a high standard of living, high profits for our corporations, mm-hmm. lower growth, and, you know, what what is now a higher level of, of kind of perpetual debt. So I wonder if going forward... You know, some of this is going to moderate across countries. So, you know, perhaps we have lower growth overall, but maybe more of the profitability is going to go outside the U.S. If we get into a sustained weaker dollar or at least an environment where the dollar is no longer appreciating at the same rate that it was, you know, during the you know kind of great period of appreciation. The only country I see out there, a major economy that still runs according to the politics of growth as opposed to the politics of identity is China. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm still a China bull, after all that's going on, from that economic perspective. I would agree with that, even though it's a centrally planned economy, but it does seem to have those characteristics. Yeah, at the micro level, I suspect the uh, the owner of the local non-state-owned enterprise would take issue with that to some extent, but in the macro sense, that's probably true. So what do we do as investors, though? If if the if if the if the political urge is towards markets as utilities, right? Where we volatility is your enemy, and clearly we've seen that, right? So so all these policies have been volatility squelching policies, and where you're not trying to to knock the lights out on returns, but you're trying to to turn it into that steady inflation engine, let's call it. What does one do as an investor? Well, we've talked about this a lot, obviously, but I think that you have to be aware of how much risk is in your portfolio and and how volatile the markets are over different periods of time. So if you go back to the 1970s, stocks and bonds were highly correlated with one another. Commodities were really the diversifying asset in an investor's portfolio, as was real estate to some extent. So I think that perhaps having a more dynamic strategic asset allocation or a more adaptive strategic allocation where you're thinking in terms of risk as opposed to dollars invested right uh, probably makes a lot of sense but you know I, I was reading an interesting piece by one of the banks today and they were talking about the fact that this mindset of investing for deflation which has really permeated the economy over the last 10 years and even you know going back 30 years, um, is going to be replaced by the need to invest for an inflationary environment over the next 10 to 30 years. And that really, that's what the next generation is going to have to look at. And that things like hard assets and um, you know consumable commodities are going to be much more important in an overall basket. So I, I wonder if, if that's not part of the whole thing that we're going to have to contend with as we look at distribution of scarce resources as being the fundamental purpose of economics or definition of economics. Yeah, I think that uh, 
you know, there's the it's often counterintuitive for investors and clients that we talk to when we you know appear to be talking out of both sides of our mouth with respect to deflation and inflation. But the reality is, at some point, that distribution stops looking like a, a normal distribution and starts looking a little bit more like a like a Weibel distribution, where you know, for those who aren't familiar with the shape of it, it looks like a bathtub. Right? It's usually used for failure of electronic parts that either fail in the first 60 days or after you've been using them for six years. But I think it's true here as well. And, and you hear us talk about barbell portfolios where um, you know, at a certain point in time, um, a pronounced deflationary or inflationary environment becomes more likely than perhaps a, a, a more, more stable price environment. But I think the, that as well as in both for that and for the rest of the market, I think the realization is that at some point, the people will recognize that the emperor doesn't have clothes, and so this this view that volatility is going to be effectively suppressed will be right until it's not. And you know, as we think about risk for portfolios, you know, expecting them to always behave in a very normal way um, is not a realistic expectation going forward. And, and recognizing that you know volatility can change very dramatically, correlations can change very dramatically. And you need to be able to adapt to that, and your portfolio construction needs to be able to adapt to that. That's why we talk about adaptive solutions uh, as the way to respond to this, because those things do change, uh, and investors should expect them to change very quickly. And and you've mentioned it um, in a in a slightly different way, Ben, in talking about you know having convex elements of your yeah. Portfolio. I was going to say this is convex to what we're talking right. about. Yeah, yeah. Optionality, optionality, optionality. That's right. And and really, and it's not just buying. You know, put some calls on the S and P five hundred. No, it's a perspective. Buying. It's a way of thinking about right. the world. Yeah, yeah. Ah, good times. Good times. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, my uh, my only other ideas bring us back to the realm of me being the Eeyore of the conversation, just because I am I I am focused on real assets. You know, I am um, by a couple of years. You know, one of the younger ones in the room. Well, Michael and I are, I think, of a similar age, yeah. and you know, we think about what what the world is going to look like for us as investors and for our wealth 30 to 40, you know, when, you know, 30 to 40 years from now, whenever you know, we're, you know, approaching the end of our days and what, what does the return environment look like over that time horizon, let's say the next 20 to 40 years. And uh, it looks relatively distressing. Uh, and I think especially in you know, to link it back to that fiscal, those fiscal considerations, you know, the amount of wealth, uh, that is ultimately going to be siphoned off to likely maintain um, the entitlement programs over that period of time um, is likely to require, I think, continued manipulation at the at the central level if the government is not willing to, whether through fiscal or monetary policy, um, assign losses for those those guarantees that we're not going to be able to make good on. And to the extent that not, they're not willing to do so, I think that those who've not accumulated those entitlements or assets are likely to be continued to be incentivized to do the things that got us into this in the first place, which is to overconsume, to live outside of one's means, and to not save. And you know, I think this is, you know, for for someone in, in my position, real assets strikes me as being probably as we can acquire them, the the, the strongest asset to justify avoiding that kind of intervention, whether it's fiscal or monetary. So that's but probably not a, a focus for the portfolio over the next you know, two, three, four years where I want to be more adaptive and diversified. But over the 30-year period, that's where my focus is going to be. Yeah, 30 years is a long time. But I don't disagree with anything that you said. But when you look at the current backdrop and the fact that 
This has been the second year where defined benefit plans have missed their return targets. And there's, and we're not even talking about social security, which has a return target of like an infinity, you know, to get it back to where they're at least setting something aside to, <laughs> to handle any benefits beyond 2016. But I think that the growing pension deficit that we're experiencing in this country is what probably puts a lid on interest rates for at least another three to five years as we figure out whether we're going to do anything about this or not. And I think that that's probably an area where there is more of a will to reduce benefits, at least to future participants, uh, but maybe even curtailing them for current participants in softer ways. Like, Soft ways, right. Yeah. Right. But, uh, you know, let me let me kind of end up with this, getting back to the standard of living. So I've just, I've got now a, um, a two daughters in college, a freshman and a, and a sophomore. And... I'm thinking about this both because we just took them back off to off to, to school. It's an amazing environment at, at at colleges and universities today. There's a positive energy there. It is it's 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 amazing. The facilities are amazing, right? The 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 it's young happy people and they've all got their devices and they're all engaged and it's all, and it's, it's, it's there's a wonderful energy it's a wonderful standard of living a safe space if you will it is a safe space if you will we won't have to get into that but, it's, <laughs> but, but it, it but it's a safe space in, in another way in the, in the sense that whether we're talking about political discourse or not it is such a safe fun positive energy place of, of learning. They're learning, they're taking all these classes, the, the equipment is top of the line. It's, it's wonderful. Now, it costs a lot of money, but really, you know, the, 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 the process for this was uh, it took me 10 minutes to borrow all the money to pay for each year. Literally, it's, it's online. I just, just, just clicked a few buttons and the government lent me all the money for, 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 for their attending. And don't even have to think about paying it back until they graduate six months even after that and we'll work something out. At the same time, I also saw where, where do you see where, where ITT Educational finally gave up the ghost today, finally had to declare that they're, they're, they're going out of business. This is one of the for-profit uh, uh, education companies because, um, you know, they've been doing this essentially a scam for too long where it's just it, it is essentially free money from the government. And I, where, where am I going with this? Where I'm going with this is that for my children, they're having the time of their lives. And it is entirely on a 30-second loan of tens of thousands of dollars each year from the government. And, and, and this is where we're going, I think, with everything. Well, not, not only that... You're now, you now have politicians from both parties, both candidates for president, are on record saying that we need to do something about the, the student desk crisis, the results from that, meaning, well, we need to... Right. You can declare bankruptcy and discharge these debts, which you haven't been able to do in the Because the, fortunately, that won't have the effect of incentivizing further overspending on those fun four years. <laughs> That's right. But, but that is how losses are going to be assigned. So I, I, I really think this is where we're going. The losses are going to be assigned... They're going to be assigned to people who've bought, you know, securitized, you know, student debt obligations. Oh, or, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I think they're they're going to be assigned centrally to the right people, where R and P are conveniently capitalized for your 
you know, convenience. It is going to be mm-hmm. the right people who the right thinking people believe are the right people to be assigned Absorb those, those losses. losses. And right now, the government is pursuing a policy to assign those to the holders of assets indiscriminately through a policy that will ultimately be inflationary. Right. And I think that accelerates to assigning it less indiscriminately, but based on, you know, are you one of those right thinking people or not? Jubilee, man. Jubilee. Jubilee. All right, guys. Thanks for coming. You can find more about uh, Lee on our website, salientpartners.com. And Ben is, of course, at Epsilon Theory on Twitter. Uh, He's also on LinkedIn. And, of course, you can sign up for his Epsilon Theory newsletter at uh, salientpartners.com slash epsilon theory. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye.